Hi everyone, I'm Camilia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Shen Tan, who wears many hats. She's a hawker, chef and founder of Oji Lamak and Own Self Make Chef, host on Food King, recipe developer and more. In this chat, she talks about her transition from the corporate world to the hawker life and also her hopes for the evolution of hawker food culture in Singapore. So yesterday when I was reading up on you, I read that you came from a corporate background and you decided to become a hawker and I was just very intrigued because it's like two ends of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So why why did you decide to make that jump? Yeah, I guess in a way they are quite different. Uh very superficially, I think if you just looked at the, the fact that one is a corporate environment, you sit in an office, air conditioning and computers, and the other is hot, humid environment, you're on your feet, very physical. But I think the fundamentals of it don't change, right? You still have to work hard, you have to plan, you have to get your numbers right. So, um, yeah, I think intrinsically, not that different, still a business, but... Uh, and you still have to put the hard graft in and the work yeah. in. But at the end of the day, uh, it's something that I really enjoy. I, I love being a mm-hmm. hawker and, and being um, involved in, in doing that work. Um, uh, and I guess what's interesting is also um, my partner said some time ago that I have a problem with authority. So being a hawker allows me to be my own boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have to kind of report to anyone yeah actually i think a lot of people are craving that kind of lifestyle right where you don't report to anyone you have um, flexibility in terms of the way that you plan your day but i guess most people who are passionate about food you know when they think about being their own boss they would think about like opening a cafe or a restaurant so for you why be why be a hawker i guess it's a in the first place it was an economic decision Right, the barriers to entry in a hawker setup is much lower than a cafe. So you can get going with about 30, 40 grand. Uh, and with a hawker setup, the food is the most important thing. Front and center, we are all about the food. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a very hot, humid, non-air-conditioned place. And that kind of actually adds to the ambiance. That adds to the general feel, right? Because mm-hmm. you think, hey, the food's going to be awesome because it really stinks around here. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, that for me was a very important part because it was really about the food and getting your chops, learning how to cook in that very small space. You know, nine square meters was my first hawker store. So your mise en place, your planning, your inventory, everything has to be very good if not you just can't hack it you know uh you also have to be really good a la minute you know if you have a long if you have a long line of people out to your stall and you're not ready you lose the customer so um for that reason you know uh serendipitously probably um that a hawker stall was a better idea and i learned a tremendous amount that i don't think i could have uh if i had started somewhere else um, I think even culinary school does not give you that grounding. Uh, so, yeah, for that for that very happy reason, the hawker was my first choice. How did you deal with the transition and um, with people's expectations? Because I guess in Singapore, being a hawker is not exactly the most glamorous. 
kind of job, right? I mean, if you if you are like a chef, you know, everyone thinks pretty highly of you in Singapore because of the way it's portrayed in the media. But I mm-hmm. guess for hawkers, you know, people have this impression that uh, you become a hawker if you didn't study much, you know, if you have no nowhere else to go, that kind of um, stereotype. So did you feel like you had to break a lot of these misconceptions or um, people's thinking that might not be true? Um, well, I think 13 years ago, there definitely was an issue, right? That where people thought like, oh, if you're a hawker, you're not well-educated, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I don't think that's fair um, because education, formal education is not the greatest predicator of success. Um, And there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, through the grit and hard work of of manual labor, you know. Um, But to answer the point whether I felt I had to prove myself, no, I didn't because Mm. I I guess I didn't really care. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't really care what people think of me being a hawker. Um, my mom was very supportive. My family was very supportive and still is very supportive. Uh, and, you know, my mom even came down to help me out at the store. Uh, so much wow. so that people thought that she was Madame Tan Nasilama. She was <laughs> Madame Tan, uh, which was great for the branding because nobody wants to eat Nasilama from a young punk so to speak, yeah, right? I actually heard that because I have another friend who is a hawker and uh, she was telling me about how she was facing a lot of prejudice, um, you know, because people are like, uh-huh, if you are in your 20s, can you cook something with soul, you know? Yes, yes. And they'll just go to someone who's older. Yeah, and also there is this, oh, is this a family recipe, blah, 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 you know, whereas sometimes, you know, a family recipe carries baggage with it as well. You can't tinker with it. You can't change it to match evolving tastes, right? So, uh, yeah, I think I was lucky to not have that baggage. And also, I think I wouldn't say I'm very much younger. Uh, at 36, I was a bit older than the average person, uh, but still younger than the hawkers. <laughs> Yeah, so 36 was when I made the big leap. And you know what? It was it was great. It, it was fine. Um, I didn't really care. Yeah. So I think that helped. Actually, I think you raised a very good point, which is the point on people's obsession with family recipes, right? Um, because yeah. now that I'm running Singapore Noodles and um, you know I'm in this space of food heritage, I do see that people are obsessed with this notion that you know, if this recipe is like a hundred-year-old recipe or like something that's passed down from a grandmother to a mother to a child, then it automatically has more weight and more legitimacy. I mean, I can't speak to that because I don't have a hundred-year-old recipe. Mm. (laughs) Um, But age doesn't necessarily make it better. Yeah. You know, Uh, we also have to take into account that... um, things are constantly evolving and changing, right? So when you have new technology, obviously you use the new technology. Mm. Uh, Old is not necessarily better. And um, so when I have people who who say to me, you use sous vide, how's that better? You know, Mm. you you should use the traditional method, which is like cooking a steak over charcoal fire. It's like, look, there's a time and place for everything, mm-hmm. you know, if a certain technique, um, a, a kind of technology can make it better, why wouldn't you use it? Mm. 
like uh, right. like a blender, right? Like people are precisely people are yes. always going on and on about you know pounding in a mortar and pestle. And it's a very romantic image, but you know, yeah. I guess times have changed. Yeah, I mean, if you have a very powerful blender that can pulverize galangal, and you as a cook, you know, right, how difficult it is to pound galangal. Why wouldn't you use the blender? Hmm. The food processor that pulverizes it and turns it into a paste in two minutes versus you tomboing for 45 minutes and then you know the, the chili juice and seeds are flying everywhere into your eyes and all that so yeah i mean and those same people who say like oh you should use tech you shouldn't use this technology it, it takes away from the taste and everything then to those people i say why do you use a fridge that's new technology Mm. Do you use a gas stove? Do you use an electric oven? That's mm. technology too. Yeah, so true. So how do you decide on selling nasi lemak? I feel that, you know, being a hawker, one of the most difficult things is deciding what to sell because everyone is specialized in one dish, right? It was kind of a no-brainer for me because I love nasi lemak. I mean, you know, uh, back in the day when I was a party girl and, you know, drinking a lot, that's the, the perfect thing to finish your night with, right? Supper. Uh, it's naslama. It's got oil. It's it's rich, creamy, delicious rice. It's got a protein. It's typically deep fried. There's chili. There's crunchy ikan bilis. It's beautiful, and you can have it for breakfast, lunch, dinner, tea, whenever you want it. And guess what? There's so many versions. Mm. There's the economy bihun version. There is the Peranakan version. There's the Malay version, and then you know. Uh, for myself, you know, I, I kind of like forged my own path and did my own version. Yeah, I saw on your Instagram that um, what makes your nasi lemak unique is the method of twice steaming, right? Well, I wouldn't say that's the thing that makes it unique uh, because uh, Peranakans and Malays, kukus, actually, nasi lemak kukus is the steaming, twice steaming. Yeah. Um, it's more the fact that I actually use fenugreek uh, mm. and there are 11 ingredients in my nasi lemak rice. Yeah, but actually I feel that the twice steaming is not that common. Like, mm. you know, when you look online, all the recipes are for, you know, rice cooker, yeah. nasi lemak rice. Like, people don't really share about the technique of twice steaming. So, how did you come across this technique in the first place? Um, so, for me, right, uh, there are a lot of local recipes or local national establishments that are using basmati rice. And if you mm. think about it in a logical, scientific manner, why do they use basmati rice? Because it's a drier rice so that it can take on more moisture and you have that fluffy texture, which then mm. can be replicated by doing the toy steaming method. Because mm. with uh, coconut milk, it is an, uh, it is not a solution, right? It actually splits. So the water, when you cook it in the rice cooker and you put in the yeah. coconut milk, what happens is the cream rises the top and you get all that glugginess on the top and the bottom mm. doesn't have the lama. So by thinking about it and reading you know, various cookbooks, I realized that you could then have the fluffy texture by steaming it first round, by par-cooking it, it allows the rice to then soak up more moisture in the coconut uh, milk solution. Mm. And then once it's dry, it's soaked up all the moisture, you steam it again. So that's the twice steaming. 
then just like a nerdy side fact, it then becomes a uh, more starch resistant. Oh, so actually okay. it becomes a little bit healthier. It's a lower <laughs> GI. Yeah, I know that you're very into into healthy um like uh understanding healthfulness in food. Uh and I read about your story about how there was a turning point in your life where you decided to really watch your diet. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so how does that reconcile with you um selling nasi lemak? I mean like was that was that after you started selling nasi lemak? Um Okay, so I have a, a rather controversial view on this, right? So people have come to me and said like, oh, you're, you're all about the healthy eating. Why don't you do like low-carb nasi lemak? To which I say, no, hell no, never going to happen on my watch. Because I believe that if you're going to eat something indulgent, luxuriously fatty and unctuous, go for the real thing. No half measures, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, and And... Don't just don't eat it every day, you mm. know. Have it yeah. once a month, once every two months. Be satisfied, yeah. and therefore, I posit that you should then, when you do have it that one time every two months, have the best you can possibly have. Yeah, you know that that, I agree. that really full fat version that is so delicious, that satiates that craving, and then you're done. Mm. So the same thing with chocolate. Yeah. What's this like low fat extra vegetable version? No. <laughs> to have the one with lots of lard, extra lard, with cockles, mm. everything. Yeah. So that's mm. my theory. And I mean, you can see on my socials that, you know, when I do eat something, I go f- I go for the full fat version. All in, All in yeah. extra bacon, blah, blah, blah. You name it, I add it, you know. But on a day to day basis, I fast. 23 hours mm. and I have one meal a day and it typically tends to be home cooked because I have food intolerances as well. Actually, this reminds me of the debate that I saw. I think it was mm. on the straight stands where people were talking about chicken rice made with brown rice, right? And then there was this whole debate about whether or not our hawkers should start using brown rice and chicken rice. And for me, I agree with you, you know, I don't understand, um, you know, going half in and and going for like low fat cake i mean if you want to eat cake then eat like the real deal you know like uh you're just not satisfying yourself but at the same time i do feel that hawker culture has to evolve Mm. because right now i i do feel that it is a meal that a lot of people rely on for you know their daily meals Mm -hmm. not everyone has home cooked food um and i think it is a real problem because hawker food evolved in a time that is very different from now right evolved as a way to feed laborers you know really calorie high meals at a cheap cost but now i feel that more people are becoming sedentary so how do you see hawker food potentially evolving um so that's a very big question to unpack right uh so first of all how it should evolve and how it will evolve are two different things right Mm -hmm. um I believe that hawker food in 10 years, and you're already seeing it now, will Mm. be big chains taking out stalls in hawker centres and food will come from the... um, Central kitchen. Central kitchen, and it will be all plug-and-play stuff. What do you mean by plug-and-play? So it will be chicken rice. It will be duck rice. So... The chickens will be roasted in the central kitchen. Mm. The rice will be cooked on site, right? Mm. Uh, and then when there's an order, the guy will chop up the chicken, serve it onto the rice. 
So there's no real, how do I say, uh, a la minute cooking already. So uh, things like chai tao kui, cha kui teow, fried hokkien mee, no more. Yeah, you already see some hawkers not making their own kui, right? Like they just get it from the central kitchen. Yeah, and um, that I feel is going to be the future. Even fishbowl noodles will be all chains, you know. There might be some holdouts up because I think bar chow mee or that. But cha kui teow, you look at the current top 10 cha kui teows, how many have somebody to take over? Mm. They are all at least above 60 years old. Yeah. Zion Road, well, the only one that w- was taken over was uh, the one at Bedok South, Hill Street Cha Kui Tiao. Mm. Yeah, so that's for me how it, 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 I see it happening. Uh, then we have the economy rise, which is already happening. It's cooked in giant factories. I think before COVID, some of it was even cooked in factories in Malaysia and then shipped over. Wow, I didn't know that. It was shocking. Yes, or they even process the stuff, the vegetables and everything, then cook it and then send it over. Because labor is much cheaper there. Yeah. And in like they cook in those giant kettles and stuff like that, yeah, right? And it's all I mean, automated, use... right? Correct, yeah. Um now how I think it should be evolved is there should be two tracks. There should be one where people who do need like lower SES, who do need to, to be able to access uh, ready-cooked meals at a reasonable price, say $2.50, $3, and the government should actually uh, subsidize that, um, the rentals on that or in that arena, and that people can ex- access it, that kind of food, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I also feel quite strongly that it should be because this is an everyday thing. They're eating this food every day. It shouldn't. It should be more vegetables. Yeah. Maybe an option of uh, brown rice, mixed rice berry, whatever it mm. may be. Uh, and that's that's what we we. It should be nutrient dense, basically. Mm. Uh, and then. The other track is really then our heritage songs. Yeah. yeah. And they don't get rent rebates. They don't whatever, you know. They mm. they sell the food. And if you want to eat it, then you have to pay $8, $10, mm. whatever. So that it's financially viable for the hawker to do it. I mean, why should I make only $2,500, $3,000? I might as well be a security guard. Mm. It's less painful, right? Yeah. So passion doesn't feed people. Yes. It it doesn't pay your CPF. It doesn't pay your mortgage. It doesn't pay for my medical insurance. Yeah, exactly. I completely and, agree with you. And you know, Singaporeans who say like, oh, we're losing our hawker heritage. On the other hand, are complaining on socials that standard drop so expensive, so little. Mm. They can count, oh, only got three prawns. Only got two pieces of pork rib. Yeah. Why? You have to ask yourself why. It is not the hawker's job to feed you guys for very little money. I mean, I was asked the question recently, how do Singapore hawkers put out the food at such low prices? Mm-hmm. Because they are subsidizing with their salaries. Yeah, so true. So from the perspective of a hawker, um, do you think you could make a living without having these other side hustles? Uh, yes, you could. 
you could, but you would have to be really careful about it. Uh, you, you need to do your numbers. You need to know your pricing, your cost of goods sold, all that stuff, which I didn't know in my first August doll and didn't make any money at all. Yeah. Yeah. You can, mm. I think you can, but um, I think, again, you know, Singaporeans need to be very careful about what we we expect from hawkers because if not, we lose we yeah. lose our heritage dishes. I mean, if you look now, how many stores sell satay bihun? A, a yeah, good satay bihun. And that's a really Singaporean dish. It is such a beautiful, delicious Singaporean dish. And I think, to my knowledge, there's only like two stalls left. Mm, exactly. I, I, to be honest, I wasn't a fan of Sate Bihun when I was living in Singapore. But when I actually went to read um, interviews of hawkers and um, really decipher how, how they made it um, yep. and made it for myself, I was like, oh my God, the sauce is amazing. I used to think that it was just watered down sate sauce. But then I realized completely no, yeah. yeah. And then I realized that they use five spice powder, they use tipo, they use yeah. you know all these wonderful dried Chinese goods, and then you couple that with the rempa making technique, right? And then you get something that is so uniquely Singaporean. Yes, and it's the bomb, right? Mm. And then with the cuttlefish mm. and everything, I just love it. And the pork that's so Chinese, mm. you know. But the rempa, like you said, is mm. is Malay, you know. Mm. So, um. What happens then? You know, we lose it or maybe someone comes along and modifies it and evolves, which I think uh, even when people ask me Singaporean cuisine, it's like, what is Singaporean cuisine? Yeah. It is constantly evolving. I was told off 12 years ago by a Peranakan when I served beef rendang with uh, nasi lemak <laughs> because you're not supposed to serve lemak with lemak. And I'm like, why? Who, who decided and made, who made this rule, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, if it tastes good, why not? Yeah. And maybe some things like, you know, like a kueh, like some of the kueh are, are no longer being made. Why? Because they just don't taste very good, honestly. Yeah. Some kueh are, are just stodgy bricks of flour mm-hmm. of, and with a bit of colouring. And for that reason, that's why they haven't survived, right? Yeah. And, and maybe they do deserve to be lost. I don't know. I don't have the yeah. answer to that question, right? Because I, I don't think I'm the one who says, this gets to stay, this gets to go. Because yeah. it's what the market decides, honestly, mm. right? So obviously, kueh salat is very popular because it's delicious. It's creamy. It's, it's you know, it's pandan. It's, it's coconut. And then you have that beautiful rice with slightly savory flavors. And then you, you've currently seen a renaissance, uh, mm. with COVID because people are making it now and they're modernizing it and you know Malcolm did a beautiful version four years yeah. back five years back and he was the first one to get that ball rolling and that's mm. what I mean taking that that very essential kue and I think Marcus spoke about it last the last podcast mm. and you know changing it to to suit modern taste and because bearing in mind we have better technology now we have better ingredients why wouldn't you exactly i i totally agree i feel that it's a survival of the fittest when it comes to some yeah. of these heritage dishes right yeah and i feel that sometimes you know for example an angukwe might not be objectively more delicious than a cupcake in terms of universal appeal but i guess what you know uh, compels us to preserve it is the nostalgia and yeah. like the memories that we have like say when we were growing up 
But maybe you know, for the future generations, when they didn't grow up, when they don't grow up eating such things, they might feel like, oh, you know, it deserves to be lost. So I feel that it's a very subjective thing. It um, and it's what the market will bear. Yeah, you know, like I said. So if, uh, you know, a cupcake is more delicious to them, then who are we to say uh, yeah, that? True. You know, no, no, but. But coming back to that, like, what if someone could make a cupcake, I mean, a uh, angkukui, delicious, mm. the skin so thin, and then the filling is something new and different and radical. Why not? Yeah. You know, maybe instead of peanuts, it could be beautiful cashew nuts, mm. you know, with a creamy cashew nut butter. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't have the answers. Totally. Um, I was watching your TED Talk, and uh, something that you mentioned that was very interesting was that, you know, we should expand our lexicon of, um, our national dishes or hawker dishes because we always talk about the same few dishes like chicken rice, like laksa. So my question to you is, why do you think um, there hasn't been many new additions to our hawker scene in recent times? I think because, you know, being a hawker where the margins are so tight already, right? What What's the margin? Like 5, 5, 10%? That's very, very tight. Uh, would you dare introduce something new? bearing in mind that the appetite for risk is very very low you know so you gotta have chops and gumption uh to to basically say hey this is a new thing i think it's delicious you should buy it and try it right um having said that though you know uh next year i would like to introduce uh a variation of a dish. Some might say it already exists. Like uh, it's a dry ban mian, but I want to make my own version with a lard sambal mm. and five spice pork confit and a sous vide egg. Mm. Yeah, so I would call it lard ban mian because it would have a lot of lard. Yeah, I love lard, and I I think I've seen that sambal on your Instagram before. Like you were posting about it, right? Yes, that's right. So. Um, to answer your question, I think that's the re- very reason why, right? You you need to have, uh, obviously, a new product and you need to have the financial resources to launch and market it and, and to make it successful. Yeah. Speaking of marketing, you know, I know that you're very active on social media, um, but a lot of hawkers are from a different generation. They might not be comfortable with using technology or social media. How important mm-hmm. do you think is social media to the success of a hawker store? I th- okay, let's put it, let's flip it on its head. What, the reason why I became very social, uh, very active on social media was because uh, 12 years ago when I started Madam Tan's Nasalama, I had no marketing budget. And Twitter uh, was an easy way to get the word out. So, you know, um, fast forward, obviously, 12 years, uh, being on various platforms. So now, uh, being on Food King, you know, YouTube, etc., etc., is, in a way, communication, is storytelling. That's what food is about, right? Or, or, or rather, all creative pursuits are about telling a story. Yeah. It's just the medium is slightly different. So by that same token... How do you get your story across if you have a limited budget? Mm. Social media is really the way to go. Uh, and you, I think you can see that happening a lot last year in 2020 with the home-based businesses because mm. how else can you get the word out? And now a lot of the media, the 
mainstream media are actually trawling through the social media pages mm, to pick up stories. I don't think it is that hawkers need to be good at social media, don't do it. Really? good at communication mm. and marketing themselves with whatever they have, with whatever resources they have. So in most times, it's limited resources. Yeah. And now with all of these years of experience that you have, you know, running your hawker stall, um, promoting heritage food in your own way, would you encourage young Singaporeans to join the hawker trade? Or would you, I mean, what kind of advice or what kind of caution would you would you give? Uh, <laughs> no. Jokes aside. Um, I would say... You know, with private dining, if you can, refine your craft um, with private dining first. Um, and because you, you don't have overheads with private dining, uh, get that sorted. See if you can cook commercially. Because the worst thing is, you know, when you're really good at cooking something, then your friends will sabo you and say, hey, you should open a store. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> right? Kama <Yeah>. sabo. <laughs> $200,000 later yeah. and your body is broken by the kitchen work they, you know and you know these people who sabo you never came down to support you also yeah <laughs> harsh truth there <laughs> <laughs> true story hashtag yeah um, so I would say yes uh, do do a stint private dining you know have people come over see how many people will pay money for your food mm. right or even if you don't want to do private dining you can do a home-based business mm. where you deliver the food, your your dish, right? And take on the feedback. Of course, most of it will be rubbish, but, you know, there are gems among amidst the uh, the rubbish, right? And then um, you really then have to look at location of your store, all these things. You need to look at staffing, Um because you know what, you need stuff. You just you you, you can't do it alone. Even you end even up, with a hawker stall, you can't do it alone. You can't. No, especially with a hawker stall, mm. because it's like uh, eighteen hours easy. Yeah, mm. I mean, I have a friend, uh, Ray Fang, who sells oh. hey yeah, me, at right? Teka Market, right? At Teka Market, she's up at two o'clock. Mm. She's at the stall by three yeah. a.m. Right, and then she finishes generally by four, so that's twelve hours on your feet, and she has her mom, her dad, herself, and her auntie. That's four people. Mm. Wow! So if you try to go it alone, you'll be so broken. You'll burn out. So my advice is really numbers. Get your your cost of goods down. It's very boring but totally essential. Get Make sure you have enough cash to run the stall and human resource. You need to have good staff to can, who can help you. Mm. You know, whether... So, like, you need staff for non-core essential stuff. Like, so if you are going to be the one cooking, you need somebody who can make sure that they can take orders for you, wash up the plates. Nothing builds character like washing 300 melamine plates. Let me tell you that. Yeah. And don't forget, if you're a hawker uh, in a NEA center, you only can hire Singaporeans and PR. So that just shrinks your, your worker pool to so much less. 
And even if you wanted to pay, I mean, I know there are constant stories like KFC too talks about it all the time. $3,000, no takers. Oh, really? Because of the hours or because of... Because it's in a hawker centre, no one works. Singaporeans don't want to work in a hawker centre. Like for me also, I would have somebody in uh, back in Maxwell come in to wash plates and just wash out the store end of the day, two hours work. And sometimes he wouldn't show up, so guess who would have to do it? Wow, pao ka liao. finish, you know, early, wake up four o'clock to cook, blah, 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 blah. And then at the end of the day, have to wash the plates. Yeah. Uh, and then your hand, your nail bed gets infected. Mm. But but for <laughs> and, you, I mean, you know, knowing how hard it is, um, why do you still persist in having that stall? Um. Well, second time around, um, a lot older and wiser, mm. you know, and I have a great support team operationally helping me out as well. Mm. Uh, and. It is part of a puzzle. We are actually moving into a much bigger space. Mm. Uh, we will be having a bigger central kitchen. Mm. And what will happen is we will have island-wide delivery through wow. six other cloud kitchens. So we will have seven outlets in total. What is a cloud kitchen? I feel like I'm lagging behind. Can you just tell me what a cloud kitchen is? A uh, cloud kitchen is uh, basically there's no dining. It's just where they produce the food oh, okay. uh, in hubs where people are ordering a lot of food. Oh. So like, uh, you know, the grab kitchens, that's mm-hmm. a cloud kitchen. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So similar so, to a central kitchen. Yes, but they don't produce the food in large amounts then. Oh. So we will have our central kitchen then we will send our food to these nodules. You can consider them like a nodular ki- modular kitchen. Yeah. So, say, uh, it's normally they deliver food within a two-kilometer radius of that cloud kitchen. So, we will, we have six throughout the island. You envision this shift in hawker food culture to meet with a lot of resistance because I think a lot of people are very attached to that romantic idea of you know, your hawker food being prepared in that one space by that one person instead of by like machines or like, you know, in central kitchens or cloud kitchens? Well, to be honest, yes, there is that romantic idea of the hawkers leaving over the charcoal fire and etc, etc. But if you Mm. were to do a blind taste test, right, very objectively, because I've done it both ways, I can tell you that the latter is safer and better for the consumer. Because of the consistency? Yes. It's more consistent, right? Mm. Because don't forget, even for me, if I were to be working 13 hours a day, I'm going to mess up. Mm. It's not going to be good, all right? Mm. So with this system, we are able to keep it consistent every day and... Uh, my recipes now for the actually from the beginning already. It's never been a pinch of this or whatever. It is by grams. Yeah, thirty five grams salt, mm-hmm. fifteen grams whatever you know stuff like that. Yeah. So it is remarkably consistent, and it's the yeah. same day to day, um, and that's what I think you've worked in kitchens before. That is the biggest monkey on your back right all all head chefs stress about this is how do you get the product to be as consistent as possible john george from record sign actually plates makes his people plate the salad on the scale and then they shave wow. the parmigiano on it was one gram of parmigiano or two grams 
for yeah. a salad, you know. Yeah. So it is the same all over the world. Mm. But actually, you know, you'll be surprised that now when I speak to my friends in the industry, they tell me that the new kitchens, right, like modern kitchens, are moving towards um, a, a system that is less consistent and more intuitive. So they wouldn't have recipes. They'll tell the, the cooks to like season to your own taste, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a lot of cooks who grew up with that kind of, you know, follow recipes to a tea, they struggle with that. So I guess, you know, it's like, People are so split on this, like this, um, you know, soulful kind of cooking versus mm. like consistent restaurant style approach. Well, I think there are always arguments for, for, the, for both sides. Let's think about hawker centers and the history, right? Mm. Why were hawker centers created in the first place? Mm. It's to make it cleaner and safer for the consumers. Yeah. Right. And if you look at the current hawker center setup, it is not cleaner and safer, in my opinion. Mm. Because... How much, how much space do we have for 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 chillers, freezers, you know, prep for mise en place? It's tiny. It's six point. The average hawker stall is about seven square meters. That's very tiny, right? And you're supposed to like have display, collect money, store yeah. your food, everything. How how do you do that? You've worked in a kitchen. You know that realistically, that's not a safe environment. Yeah. But, but honestly, props to the hawkers, man. Like, I can't yes. imagine cooking in such a space. <laughs> it's like so claustrophobic, you know. It is. And I've got, I mean, you know, now I'm a champion fridge packer. Okay. And that's because of my hawker store training. Yeah. Uh, till this day, I mean, when I work in commercial kitchens, they would tell, oh, there's no more space. I was like, what do you mean there's no more space? Like, you have to ensure, obviously, you have to ensure there's adequate airflow. But, it's like, you know, first in, first out, you pack correctly, use boxes, you know, stuff like that. It's so interesting. Yeah, saying that hawker, the, the hawker kitchen is very, very much the same as like a restaurant kitchen in terms of what it teaches you, like the grid, the organizational skills, mise en place. It's so interesting because when you talk to hawkers, you know, those concepts are not fleshed out. To them, it's very like intuitive. But, you know, hearing mm. it from your perspective, I think you broke it down very well. And like, I feel that there there should be so much more respect for hawkers because, you know, they are actually doing pretty much the same kind of things that a restaurant But can. in a space of like one quarter than what you guys were yeah. in. Right. That's Think about so true. It. Okay, something else that I want to touch on is um your newfound love for vegetables. <laughs> because I, I, I heard this interview where you said that you used to hate vegetables, your mom used to force you to eat them. All of a sudden you became this like healthy food loving, um vegetable eating person. And I was just wondering, um, how how did that transition happen? First of all, I think it came about um my partner is a doctor. Oh. And she- Two years ago, she did a master's in nutritional science, human nutrition mm. and functional medicine. And where really that link between food and health is really explored. And this is something that I'm working on. Actually, I'm working on a project um, for a, a website called The Woman's Health Line, where we actually talk about women's health issues, mm. right? Um, and... So 70% of chronic disease is caused by what we put into our body. Mm. So just take a moment with that fact, right? 70% of chronic disease. And when I say chronic disease, it's not like lupus or whatever. I'm talking heart disease, diabetes, stroke, hypertension, 
kidney failure, all caused by what we put into our body. Mm. And the healthiest thing you could possibly eat are vegetables. They are nutrient dense. They have fiber. They are great for your gut bacteria, mm. which then in turn affects your moods. So, you know, in in at this point of time, I just see on social media a lot of stuff like take this supplement, take this thing, you know, like do this and then blah, blah, blah. Take these ketone, blah, 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 yeah. whatever. And I'm just like, why don't you just eat food? Mm. Yeah, eat more vegetables. And you get all these, all these benefits. Mm. So that was the paradigm shift. It just like clicked on for me. Then secondly... I think uh, with a lot of the chefs actually from the Western world, like Alan Passat and now Daniel Hum, mm. you know, really looking about plant, plant forward, mm. you know, vegetable forward. That uh, even Dan Barber from Blue Hill yeah. Farms, where he has special squash mm. uh, grown from him. Like, I, I think that's important because then you can really look at the deliciousness of Mm. vegetables and i think also we should take greater pride in the vegetables that we have here exactly. why does why why are we eating kale like that makes no sense to me mm. like i would rather eat gailan so true you know it's cheaper it's more delicious and it travels a shorter distance mm. right so why would i buy corn from japan i still have the day the boiki to come here mm. right i would buy the corn from cameron highlands it's better it's much sweeter because you, they've just harvested it we get it within a day right so the sugars haven't been converted into carbohydrates so i think we I, i'm not just doing this just oh it's sexy to be local more it just makes more sense yeah i i think one of the main things why people don't embrace local vegetables or why they don't like eating vegetables is because like in the local context Vegetables have always been treated as second rate. When I was growing up, vegetables were just like, you know, you have to order it to like make your meal, make your zi meal feel yeah. a bit more virtuous, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's always like, you know, the, the star was always like the coffee ribs or like the salt baked chicken. It was never like the stir fried vegetables. Yeah, but if you look at it, like, I think some of the vegetables are coming back mm. into vogue, uh, like patai beans. Yes. Bloody delicious full of nutrients, great for you, and yeah, slightly divisive uh, because of the mm. smell. But it's so delicious, and why are we not eating it? You know, mm. We should be eating stuff like that. But again, gailan, delicious. You can char it, you know, mm. and, and it becomes different. Yeah. We can always put fish sauce on it or yeah. butter or whatever. Let's explore these vegetables. Yeah. So why do you think Singaporeans are not eating their greens as much as they should is it because there is insufficient knowledge to prepare these local vegetables for example or do you think mm. it's like a social yeah. status kind of thing where meat is like i have arrived you know that kind of thing <laughs> i think it's a it's all of the above mm. you know um look not so long ago my parents couldn't even afford to eat chicken rice mm. they only ate chicken rice on payday wow that's how poor they were. Mm. Uh, I think chicken rice like 20 cents. Yeah. So they could only eat chicken rice on payday. Mm. tail, they brought their own egg. Why? Because an egg is expensive. Wow. I didn't know you could bring your own egg to the hockey festival. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, so for um, like my dad was very poor. He grew up uh, 
Like they only ate eggs on their birthday. Mm. That's how poor they were. Like that tradition of eating the red eggs, right? Um, So yeah, I think for a lot of people, that's why they still think, oh, the very big brawn or the chicken Mm. or the pork or beef, you know, or something like Wagyu even. It's like, wow, a big deal. Mm. Um, But then I, I think as we progress, then there will be a return to uh, eating more vegetables. Mm. I oh, I also have this theory, like, you know, there is a limit to everything. Mm. If you ate durian every day, your body would break down. Mm. You would have a nosebleed, you know, yeah. your, your cholesterol levels would be through the roof. You would get gout, you get diabetes, blah, blah, blah. So before, they were limited by the lack of cash. Mm, true. Now, you are limited by your body. Yeah. And also, you know, um, learn to savor it. If you have it every day, it's not going to be as delicious. It's it's just like your first kiss, right? It, it the first time you have it, it's just amazing, mm. right? So I've been doing a long fast, like clean fast, where I don't eat uh, or drink anything with calories for seventy two hours. That's not even possible. Yeah. <laughs> It is, it is, it is. Because after a certain point, your body kicks into uh, ketogenic and wow. uh, ketosis. So you're burning fat, actually. Okay. You're burning your own body fat. Yeah. So what's interesting is that uh, after a 48-hour fast, I have an ice milk tea. And it's like the best I tell you, it, your dopamine receptors are like going off like fireworks. It's almost like taking drugs, oh. seriously. So can you imagine if you did that, like if not depriving yourself, but just eating something that you really enjoy once in a while, can you imagine how delightful that is? Mm. Yeah, I think that's such uh, such an interesting take. I've never heard something like that before. <laughs> <laughs> but recently I was listening to this podcast episode on why uh, people are addicted to dopamine these days. So they'll keep eating mm. pleasurable foods and then, you know, the pleasure diminishes. And, and so yes. that psychologist was talking about how we should, you know, try to hold back on, on pleasure. And then like when you indulge, you really enjoy it. Yes. So that's that's the, the idea, right? You you dial it back. Because it's just like if you had uni every day, then how it's not short already, right? So not deprivation, but titration, I think. Mm, interesting. So bringing it back to hawker food, you know, how do you feel mm. that uh, you would like hawker food to be to be more in line with your current philosophy of eating more vegetables and having a more balanced or more healthful approach to eating, I guess? You're right, you know, like hawker food was to feed the masses, to feed uh, people who, who had less sedentary like it was manual yeah. laborers right so you would have like me pop it's a giant bowl of noodles yeah. you know uh and but the thing is we no longer expend that amount of energy yeah. right so um and also i think hawkers now what they're trying to do is that to give the illusion of fullness and a lot right they always give a lot of carbs True. so if you order me pop how many fish balls are there going to be three mm. four maybe a prawn if you're having a slightly luxe version or whatever. So the amount of protein in comparison to the amount of carbs, it's, it's just not commensurate, mm. which I feel has thrown the balance of a hawker dish. Mm. 
because people yeah. want to pay like five dollars and like wow oh, there's a lot to eat but really as a consumer it's your part to say i i don't need to eat so many carbs yeah actually it's very interesting because my parents generation are the, is the generation is like oh it has to be value for money you know it has That's to right. be a lot it has to be filling um yeah but now when i go to a hawker center i mean after having lived in australia going back to singapore it's like I, I, I felt a bit sick after eating like so much hawker food because I felt so like I felt indig- uh, indigestion. Yeah. yeah because when you order a chicken rice, it's just rice, chicken, and then a few slices of cucumber. Yeah. Like there's not much fiber. Even chakwetiao is just a few strands of yes. bean sprouts and Chinese chai. So that's why it comes back to, I think there needs to be a separation where, okay, if you're going to be eating this kind of food, like look you cannot eat chocolate every day and that it should be priced differently i would almost liken it to a uh what do you call it like a sugar tax that they have in the scandic countries yeah you know what i mean like uh that there's like a 20 percent sugar tax i, I believe yeah. so i think that that should be the way like this kind of hawker food that will be a 20 percent premium because they are not subsidized with the uh, rental Oh, true. That's, that's a good way to think about it. But I also think that there are a lot of heritage dishes that can be quite healthy, like yes. thunder tea, right? Yes. That's super healthy. Or like yes. nasi ulam. Okay. And, um, yeah. But who's going to sell nasi ulam? The labor involved in that. Yeah. yeah. And right? thunder tea is also very laborious. Yes. So mm. I think, you know, uh, instead of saying like, oh, you as a hawker, you must sell something for 250 No, let's just make it, okay, if you want to qualify for the cheaper rent, then your food should be, you know, uh, below a certain calorie count or fiber or nutrient dense or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how you work it yeah. out, but then so that then people can access cheap food that is nutrient dense and is healthier. And that will also help HPV because if you look at the stats, right, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars fighting diabetes. Mm which is a metabolic disease, which then affects your risk for heart disease, for stroke, for cancers. So if you can just control this 70%, right, the chronic disease, then you save so much money in other things. Like it costs our economy trillions of dollars. Yeah. Diabetes. yeah. So why won't you take that money? That you're always letting people do more exercise, don't eat sugar, blah, 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 and all that, right? And just funnel it to creating these kinds of focus yeah it's been so amazing chatting with you like i feel that i really enjoyed this conversation and you really gave me some new things to think about thanks for the the chat i really enjoyed it that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Shen Tan, who is a hawker, chef and founder of OG Lamak and own self-make chef. Traditional dishes in Singapore suffer from a lack of documentation that result in them potentially being lost with time. By sharing well-tested recipes with precise measurements and clear instructions, we hope to demystify Singaporean cooking and allow you to continue enjoying your favourite dishes and snacks for many years to come. Visit our website at sgpnoodles.com for local recipes and video tutorials. We also have a newsletter where we share about kitchen tips and other food stories at sgpnoodles.sub stack.com that is s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k once again thank you for listening to the podcast and i'll catch you next week